You are listening to audio from Hyde Park Baptist Church. If you would like to learn more about our ministry, please visit hydepark.church. Bibles turn to Acts chapter 8. I hope that uh, as you're sitting around your dining room table or in your living room that uh, you have a copy of God's Word with you either on your apps or Bible in front of you. I hope that uh, you've got the kids and your uh, students gathered around, your teenagers, and uh, we can uh, spend some time in God's Word this morning. I want to start out by reading uh, Acts chapter 8, just the first few verses, and and just point out that there is a major division in the book of Acts uh, right after verse 3 in chapter 8. It's So basically chapters 1 through 8 up to verses number 3 in chapter 8, there's one main division, and now we move into the second uh, portion of the book of Acts. Uh, If you've noticed, the title of our series is... uh, is movement, momentum, and mission. So we we have the first portion of the book of Acts. We begin to see a movement of the Holy Spirit. Um, we begin to see uh, that the disciples have been growing at, uh, extra, uh, amazingly inside the streets of Jerusalem. But as you know, Jesus had said that the gospel was to go beyond Jerusalem to Samaria to the uttermost, And that's what we're about to see in chapter 8. So let's take a look at chapter 8, verse 1. And Saul approved of his execution. I'll stop right there for just a moment. Saul approved of his execution. Who are we talking about? We're talking about Stephen. If you remember last week, uh, Stephen um, preached a powerful message. Uh, That message had to do with the fact that God is moving and working beyond the confines of the temple and beyond the the streets and the city of Jerusalem, that God's movement and God's power and and what God is doing in the world goes far beyond a temple, that God is not constrained by a temple or even a city or even the covenant people, that God's work is going to move beyond that and that God's mission through Jesus Christ is that the nation may hear the good news and respond. And for Stephen's stand and for his sermon and for his stand upon the gospel, he is stoned. And standing there that day is a guy by the name of Saul, who we are going to eventually find out is the Apostle Paul. And on that day, he's standing there in full approval of Stephen's death. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made a great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church, and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women committed and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip. And when they heard him and saw the signs that he did, For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. Father in heaven, we thank you for the power of your word. And Father, it is our desire that the gospel and the good news would go forth to all nations, to all people. Father, we are thankful that uh, you have made it possible for us to continue the ministries of this church and the proclamation of your word in spite of all of the changes and the disruptions that we've seen. And we're thankful for talented people in this church who've been able to put together uh, technology to be able to give us this platform. But most of all, Father, we thank you that, that you are not confined to this building. Your power, your convicting spirit, the move of the Holy Spirit is not confined to a particular building or contem- contempor- a, a specific location. So, Father, we thank you for that. And we know, Father, that right now you're working in the hearts of the people who are listening through the Internet across this county and, and even across our country. We thank you for that. We, re- we bless your name for that. We seek your face this morning. And guide us in your word. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. 
I saw a cartoon recently. Uh, it had a group of men sitting around a poker table, and they were playing poker. And uh, there's one particular man who, in the picture, uh, is pushing all of his money towards the center of a table. In other words, he's going to bet everything that he's got on the particular hand that he has at that time. And there's a bubble over his head that gives us the the content of what he's thinking. And, and what he's doing is he's praying. And and this is the prayer that he that he prays. He says, Lord, if you will let me win just this one time, I will never gamble again. I'm reminded of uh, when Serena Williams won the 2015 Wimbledon title. There was uh, a lot of headlines that went out, and I I remember this particular headline because it caught my attention in 2015. One of the headlines that I saw during that time, it said that Serena Williams' secret weapon was Jehovah God. In other words, um, because Serena Williams is a Jehovah Witness, by the way, and uh, she talks about that quite a bit, Uh, the person who wrote the article had determined that one of the reasons that she was able to win so definitively was because she had a secret weapon, a secret weapon, and that secret weapon was Jehovah God. Maybe maybe you've done this. Maybe you are um, making a visit to the doctor. The doctor saw something in your blood work through your regular physical. And all of a sudden you get that call from the doctor, and the doctor says, you know, we saw something a little little off in your blood work. We need you to come back in, and we're going to do some more tests. And maybe while you're sitting in the waiting room waiting for that other test, you begin to think about all the what-ifs. What if it's this or what if it's that? Well, we have this in our, in our family. We have uh, this kind of sickness or this kind of cancer or this kind of disease in our family. What if, what if it's beginning to make itself known in, in, in me? And, and then we, we go to God in prayer and we say, God, if you'll just let me get a good report. If you'll let this test be good. If you'll, if you'll let me avoid this diagno- uh, diagnosis, then then I'll be faithful. I'll go to church more. I'll pray more. I'll talk about Jesus more. And we begin to make bargains with God. Or maybe, maybe you think, maybe you're thinking is, is this way. You know, I attend church. I pray. I give. I read the Bible ever so often. And I'm not such a bad person. You know, I've never done anything really bad. So therefore, God should show me some favors, right? I mean, I mean God owes me some things because I've, I go to church and, and I give. Maybe maybe this describes you, or maybe it's this one. Maybe it's this line of thinking that describes you. You know, me and God had a deal. We had a bargain that, that I, would, I would put faith in him. And as long as he met all my needs and as long as he blessed my family and as long as he protected my family, then we would be in, a, in kind of a, an agreement together. But you know what? God let me down. You know, something went wrong in my family. We, we went through this devastating situation, and, and therefore, I, I'm no longer going to attend church because I kept my end of the bargain, but God didn't. I know that sounds a little harsh, but trust me when I tell you, I have heard many of these exact same scenarios where we bargain with God. As a matter of fact, there's been a few of those instances back through my life where I've tried to do exactly the same thing. Stephen in the previous chapter, didn't bargain with God at all. What's amazing about Stephen is, is his life and what we know about it was very short. And, and the reason it was very short is because of his stand upon the gospel. And he wasn't about to change the message to fit the whims of the people. And then when things begin to turn south quickly, and, and Stephen no doubt recognized the fact that, that the crowd was turning against him, and I don't know exactly when Stephen realized that he was going to lose his life, but I'm imagining that after he closes that out and he sees the response of the people, he realizes that his life is very short. And, and as he is placed into a pit and as he's about to be stoned to death for simply preaching and teaching the good news, the gospel, the truth, it says that he looked up into heaven and he saw Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. But we find nowhere in Stephen's stoning or death where he begins to bargain with God. And I think that's important because the guy we're going to be introduced to today in this text in chapter 8 is a guy who's trying to manipulate God. Now, on the one hand, we understand that that is foolishness, right? We, we understand that, that God and his sovereignty and his providence is, is in complete control while he gives us freedom to make choices and, and that our freedom and his sovereignty work hand in hand, which is mysterious to me, quite frankly. He gives us the ability to choose, and oftentimes we choose horribly. 
What we're going to find today in, in the text is, is a man that we're going to be introduced to who's trying to manipulate God and manipulate the disciples and to manipulate the gospel and the giving of the Holy Spirit. And I think we have some lessons we can learn from this man. Stephen's murder, Stephen's martyrdom, Stephen's death at stoning doesn't stop the movement of the gospel at all. What it does is it spreads like a wildfire. If you've ever been around a campfire that's, that's been burning for a while and there's all those embers, those glowing embers, you take a, a block of wood and you throw it into that fire, what happens? The embers scatter like crazy. That's exactly what happens after Stephen is stoned. The apostles remain in Jerusalem. Those second-generation disciples that have put their faith in Jesus, they scatter because of a man named Saul predominantly, and of course the Sanhedrin and the religious rulers who are now beginning to put incredible pressure upon the church. And now it's been, it's been very clearly laid out that they're willing to kill to stop this movement. Stephen is evidence of that. And people are afraid, and they, they scatter. But here's the amazing thing about this. They scatter, but they scatter with purpose. Instead of surrendering the gospel to the pressures at hand, they take the gospel to places like Samaria. Exactly what Jesus said the church was to be about, that in the middle of the persecution is exactly the thing that God uses to spread the gospel beyond the walls of Jerusalem. If you're a student of church history, you'll find out that this happens a lot in church history. That under intense persecution is exactly the times that the gospel spreads. You know what I've been praying for you this week? I've been praying for you that in the midst of sheltering at home or staying at home and staying away and social distancing and all that, that we're, we're needing to do right now to stop the spread of this virus, that even in that social distancing, we have the opportunity to bring Jesus up in our conversations because people are scared. And you, as a Christ follower, as many of you are, you have this confidence and this peace that surpasses all understanding. People want to know why that is. So, so we're not experiencing persecution like what we're seeing in the book of Acts or what our brothers and sisters in other countries are seeing. But nonetheless, your whole routine has changed. Your, your whole day-to-day, week-to-week routine has changed. And I'm hoping that you're spending this time getting into God's Word. You're spending this time in prayer. You're spending time with your family talking about the things of, of God and His Word and all that's happening in our world today. You see, these people scattered, not to give up on the gospel and to give up on this thing called Christianity, but to take the gospel to the nations exactly as Jesus said it would. The gospel goes beyond Jerusalem for the first time, the first recorded time. We have none other than Philip, one of the seven that were chosen to serve in the church and in the body to meet the needs of those widows who, who were not getting the daily distribution of food. You have Philip who's going to go directly to Samaria. And we know a little bit about Samaria, don't we? We, we know that the Samaritans were not very well liked. The reason they were not very well liked is if you go back into their history, uh, during the Assyrian captivity, the Jews were scattered. Some of them remained in this northern part of the northern tribes when the, when the nation of Israel split into two. You had the northern tribes, you had the southern tribes, and those northern tribes were overtaken by the Assyrians. And as a result, the Jews were scattered, and then they began to intermarry with other groups of people. And, and after all that settled, all the dust settled after all of that, they settled in that northern territory, north of Jerusalem, about 20 to 30 miles. Uh, they began to set up their own place of worship. And they were looked down upon, especially by the Jerusalem Jews, that the Samaritans were, were half-breeds. They were not full Jewish people, and they were hated with a passion. You remember when Jesus went there in John chapter 4 that people couldn't believe that his disciples, especially that, that Jesus of all people, a teacher, a rabbi, would go into Samaria when everyone else walked around? Guess where Philip goes with the gospel? He goes to Samaria. And I would offer to you that Philip has more in common with the Samaritans than probably anyone else because him being a Hellenistic Jew, a Greek-speaking Jew, as we talked about a couple of weeks ago, he, he's not very well liked by the Jews either. So he finds a great connection with the Samaritans because the Samaritans are certainly hated by the Jews. And what better place for the gospel to go than to a group of people who've been alienated and shoved aside? You see, Jesus' mission for us is a mission that goes to the whole world. And as that gospel and that mission continues to go forth, we're going to run into people who are going to seek to take the gospel and turn it into something other than the gospel. 
We're going to see that today. But isn't it interesting that at the first moment the gospel goes beyond the walls of Jerusalem, we meet a strange individual by the name of Simon. And that Simon seeks to do something, seeks to, to use the gospel in a way that was never meant to be used and to, to use his supposed faith in Christ, we'll come to that in just a moment, to manipulate people and to manipulate God. So let's take a look at verse 4. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria, and he proclaimed to them the Christ. Notice how the, as Philip goes down, he's a second-generation disciple. He is, he is a disciple that is, is the result of the ministry of the apostles and the 120. So he's that second-generation Christian, and he takes it upon himself to go down to Samaria because of all the persecution that is happening in side of the walls of Jerusalem, and he takes the initiative to go and share the gospel. He, he doesn't offer excuses. This is why the mission is given only to the apostles or only to the 120 or only to the first generation of disciples of Christ. No, he takes ownership of the Great Commission. He takes ownership of the mission to take the gospel to the nations, and the first place he goes is Samaria. So here we have the gospel going beyond the walls of Jerusalem through a second-generation disciple. Notice what happens. And the crowds, with one accord, paid attention to what was being said by Philip. And when they heard them, they saw the signs that he did for unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. Notice this. Not only is Philip a second-generation disciple, but he is also performing some of the same signs and same miracles that the apostles were performing. And remember, those signs and those miracles were to give legitimacy to his message. That, that the, the mission and the ministry of Philip was not to go cast out demons and heal the sick, although that's exactly what he did. His ministry was to preach and proclaim the gospel, and God used the miracles and the signs to give legitimacy to the message. The ministry was never healing and casting out demons. The ministry, the mission, was the proclamation of the gospel. Notice also how Philip doesn't change the message. He takes what he receives and he gives it directly to the people of Samaria. The Samaritans come together and they accept what Philip is saying. And many come to faith in Christ. Many have, have demons cast out. Many of them are healed. And notice in verse 8, there was much joy in that city. Anywhere the gospel goes, the true gospel of Jesus Christ, joy always follows that. I'm not talking about happiness per se. I do believe that when we follow Jesus, we do find happiness. But more than happiness, we find an abiding joy. Joy is different than happiness. Joy doesn't change with our outside circumstances. We, we can be filled with joy because of all that Christ has done for us as disciples in the middle of a, of a COVID-19 pandemic. Now, for some of you out there listening to me, you're thinking, how in the world can, can that be true? How in the world can I, can I find peace and joy in the spite of all that's going on? I mean, for some of you, I know that you're, you've either lost your job, you've been laid off, or you're not even sure if you're going to have a job in the next few weeks. I know for some of you that sickness has touched your family. I know that for some of you, uh, you've experienced a death, and you're trying to figure out how you're going to do a funeral with all the, uh, all the stipulations that have been given to us, and you're struggling, and you are, you are hurting. And, and the idea of having joy in the midst of all this is, is kind of foreign to you right now, but I want you to understand that if you have put your faith in Jesus Christ, he's changed your life from the inside out. You have joy unspeakable inside of you. The problem is, is the circumstances often catch our attention, and, and, and the circumstances become to bear on us more than the joy that we found in Christ. And what I have found that when we begin to look at all that God has blessed us with and where God has brought us from, we begin to find that joy renewed. I'm just as guilty as anyone is looking at the circumstances more than who I am in Christ. I'm as guilty as anyone as, as looking at the situation that I'm in rather than looking to the Christ who called me out of darkness into light. But trust me when I tell you, the joy of your salvation, the joy of following him, it's there. It's in you. The Holy Spirit living in you, it's there. Uh, what has got our attention is our circumstances. And then when we focus on that more than we do him, the joy just leaks right out of our life. 
The Samaritans are overjoyed with the fact that the gospel has come to them. These, these people were outcasts. They were, they were hated. But yet they found joy, and they found it not in just the healings, not in the demons being cast out, but in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's where the joy is found. But now we're going to be introduced to, a, to another gentleman. Verse 9, but there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in that city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. And they all paid attention to him, from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. Now, this is a strange, one of those, one of those strange moments in Scripture where when we read it, we kind of have to sit back in our chair and scratch our head a little bit. Why, why out of nowhere has this guy shown up? He, he's been in Samaria for quite some time. Apparently, he's a native of Samaria. And over the course of many years, this man has been performing magic. Now, you may be wondering, what, what kind of magic are we talking about? Slot of hand tricks like we see today with, with people who say they're magicians? Possibly. Uh, another explanation is, is that he's actually working some works of, of miracles, but not from God, from other places in the spiritual realm, even places of evil and darkness. And I think you're wondering, well, Pastor, do you believe in all that stuff? Absolutely. I believe that there is absolute spiritual warfare. There's a whole spiritual realm that we don't get to see that is veiled from us. And out of those places can come some pretty amazing and shocking things. I don't know what's happening with Simon. I just know that Simon is able to manipulate people either through sleight of hand or through some kind of amazing works that he's doing that may be empowered by Satan. All I know is that the people are shocked. And they follow him, and they hold him in high regard. And, and Simon is even declared as having some kind of power of a god. It's amazing and shocking. Notice verse 12. But when they believed in Philip as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. And here it is, verse 13. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. So here's what happens. You have Philip who comes into Samaria as a result of the persecution that's happening in Jerusalem. He takes the gospel to Samaria. He begins to preach the gospel. People begin to respond. Uh, demons are being cast out. People are being healed. Simon is in the background watching all of this. And what happens is over time, Philip's message and the power that Philip is, is displaying, the power of God, not the power of Philip, but the power of God in Philip, the crowds begin to, to just flock around around Philip, and Simon is kind of in the background now. And Simon's power and Simon's magic, whatever he was doing, whether it would be sleight of hand or otherwise, can't compare to what Philip's doing. The joy that people are finding can't compare to what Simon's been offering them. Simon's been offering a show. Philip is offering something real. Simon has been on a stage performing. Philip is out among the people preaching the gospel, and lives are being changed. Simon offers something superficial. Philip offers something that is real and life-transforming. Well, Simon himself believes. The text says that he believes and that he was baptized. But I want you to notice what happens in the text because this is another strange occurrence in the book of Acts that we need to, kinda, that we need to wrestle with for just a little bit. So even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing the signs and great miracles performed, Simon was amazed. Simon was amazed at what Philip could do. But notice in verse 14, it says, Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them, that they might receive the Holy Spirit. Now that, friends, is something that should catch our attention. So if you remember, in, in the first part of book Acts, it says the apostles remained in Jerusalem. We don't know exactly why. Maybe it was to, to keep the church unified, to keep the church moving, to keep the church together. Many of those second-generation disciples had spread beyond the walls of Jerusalem. But Peter and John get word that Philip has went down to Samaria and that the Samaritans were coming to faith in Christ, and Peter and John are going to be sent down there to just see what's going on. Now remember, Peter and John... Disciples of Jesus, that first wave of disciples, they struggled also with Samaria. As a matter of fact, back in Luke 9, 
Jesus goes into Samaria, and uh, he, he's, he's trying to preach and to teach, and the people weren't responding. And James and John go to Jesus and says, Jesus, how about just letting us rain fire down on Samaria and just wipe it off the face of the earth since they're not responding to you? Of course, Jesus doesn't let them do that, but that gives us some insight into some of the difficulty that the disciples have with this town called Samaria. But nonetheless, Peter and John go down to Samaria. But here's the reason they go down. They go down that those people might receive the Holy Spirit. Now, that's an interesting phrase. Because when we look at the whole of the New Testament, what we find is, is that when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, when you and I today, right now, under the words, under my words, if you're out there listening, you put your faith in Jesus today, at that very moment, you get the Holy Spirit. I'm going to give you some verses in just a moment to back that up. But it's an odd thing here that Luke gives us this description of what's going on that that Peter and, Peter and John have to go down to Samaria, and I want you to see what happens next. They go down, and, and they see that the Holy Spirit had not fallen on any of them yet, any of those who put their faith in Jesus, verse 16, and they've been baptized. They've been immersed in water, verse 16. It says, for, none of the, for the Holy Spirit had not fallen on any of them, but they'd only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Verse 17, they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, we have a, a predicament here. Is, is Luke saying to us that it is a requirement that when you come to faith in Christ that myself or some other elders of the church must come and lay hands on you to, that you may receive the Holy Spirit? Or does it mean that when a person gets baptized, they receive the Holy Spirit? Or does it mean that the Holy Spirit comes at some later time? Well, I'm glad you're asking that. Let's turn over to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, I want to give you a few verses that just kind of back up the fact that the Holy Spirit is given to us at the moment of salvation. Romans chapter 8. Now, as you're finding your place there, uh, I want you to understand that the, 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 the book of Acts and what Luke is doing here, he's describing something that happened. He's not prescribing something for the church. He's describing something, and that's very important to keep in mind because when we look at the rest of Paul's writings, when we look at the rest of the New Testament, we don't find exactly, again, what happened here. And we're going to see it in other places in the book of Acts. Look at Romans chapter 8. Let's look at verse 9. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. In other words, Paul says that if we don't have the Spirit living in us, then we've never been born again. We've, we've never been transformed. We are as lost as anyone else is lost. And then he goes on to say in verse 10, but if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies. In other words, not only does the Holy Spirit is given to us at the moment of salvation. It is what gives us new life. When we baptize someone and we lay them back in the water, we signify the fact that they've died to themselves and been resurrected to new life. That new life is made possible by the presence of the Holy Spirit who comes in and lives inside of us at the very moment we put faith in Jesus. That is very, very important that we understand that. Let's turn over to Ephesians real quick, and then we'll get back to Acts. I just want you to be grounded and what the whole of the New Testament says about the power and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Ephesians chapter 1, what you look at it, verse 13. It says, In him also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him. In other words, at the moment you heard about the gospel, and at the moment you believed and put faith in Jesus Christ, in those promises, notice what happens. It says, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire the possession of it to the praise of His glory. In other words, at the moment we put faith in Christ, at that moment we're given the Holy Spirit. And that Holy Spirit is a guarantee, a down payment, that, that all of the promises that God has made to us, that all the promises that Christ has made to us are going to be fulfilled. And the Holy Spirit living inside of us is the reality of those promises that God has made. Go back to Acts. So we have this unusual set of circumstances here, and we have to ask the question, why would God delay giving them the Holy Spirit then? Why would God do this here and not, not do it today? Well, I think there's a few reasons why. 
If you remember, Peter is kind of the spokesperson. He, he, was, he was there at, at Pentecost. He was the one who walked out of the upper room, preaches that message after they were filled with the Holy Spirit. Well, now we have a new move of God that has moved beyond Jerusalem and is now moving into Samaria. And Peter is going to go down there with John, and there's going to be a Samaritan Pentecost, just like there was a Jerusalem Pentecost. And, and Peter is going to go down there to not only be present when this new move of God happens beyond the walls of Jerusalem, but also to give it validity. That the separation between Jews and Samaritans, that wall is crumbling down. And the fact that Peter and John walk into Samaria and the fact that they lay hands on these people and give this move of God the legitimacy that it deserved is an incredible statement of what God is doing, bringing all people to the gospel, to the good news, and building one new family out of people from all over the world. I think that's why Peter's down there. I think that's why God withheld the Holy Spirit at this particular moment, because there was something that needed to be accomplished here. And also, I think Peter and John going down there brings unity between the Jerusalem church and the church that is now spreading beyond the walls of Jerusalem. The fact that Peter and John are there, I'm sure, would have blown the minds of the Samaritans. Because trust me, Peter and John was, was well known. As the church moved and grew, these, there were people who knew that Peter and John was with the resurrected Christ. And now they're down in Samaria. You remember the last time they were in Samaria? John 4, the woman at the well. God's doing an amazing work. And Peter and John being in that area shows the power of what God is doing by bringing all ethnicities into the kingdom through the gospel and the good news. What about Simon? Notice what happens with Simon, though. Peter has some strong words for Simon. It says here, that after Simon saw, verse 18, that the Spirit was given through the laying on of hands of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I may lay hands may receive the Holy Spirit. You got to get the, the kind of the brevity of this moment. I chuckle a little bit because I can't imagine. You know, you know Peter, you know how he, he's pretty quick to speak. I can't imagine what ran through Peter's mind and heart when Simon said this. Up until this point, Peter thinks Simon is just another person who's put their faith in Jesus and, and has been baptized. I find it interesting here that Simon has not received the Holy Spirit yet. I find it interesting here that either Simon was not part of this laying on of hands. It appears to me as though he's watching this, but he's not participating in it. He says to Peter, Peter, I want to purchase this power. I've got some silver coins that I want to give you, and I want to, I want to be able to purchase this power that you have displayed here by laying on hands. Is there some way that I can have that ability? As you can imagine, Peter doesn't take very kindly to those words. Listen to what Peter says. Verse 20, But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you. Uh, one translation of that is, May your money go to hell with you. That's pretty strong, isn't it? If you look at the Greek behind it, that's kind of what he's saying. Peter has a very strong response to Simon. He says, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter for your heart is not right with God. Here's the amazing, amazing thing about this text. That Simon did, in fact, not put his faith in Jesus Christ. He put his faith in something else. And, in fact, Simon has not come from darkness into light. That's why he did not receive the Holy Spirit. And that's why Peter is saying what he's saying. Peter looks at his life. Here's what he's saying. And Peter says to Simon, Simon, you are not right with God. He says, you have neither part nor lot. In other words, you're not part of this movement. You have no lot in what God is doing here. He says, he says here, repent. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. You see, Peter gets to the core of the problem here. What was Simon's motivation 
to want to try to buy this power. What do, you, what do you think the motivation was? Remember, his background in Samaria was one that he had a lot of large crowds. He was impressing a lot of people with some, either some sleight of hand or some works of magic. We don't know which. But nonetheless, he had a large following. He had been there for a while. Philip comes to town, and all of a sudden, the crowds turn to Philip. And I'm wondering, I'm wondering if Simon didn't want something else in his tool bag to be able to grab those crowds and grab their attention but manipulate them for his own personal gain. You see, Peter calls out the issue here. The issue is the intent of his heart, the motivation of his heart. And what Peter sees in his heart is wickedness. He says, verse 23, For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness. That gall is it's a terrible thing to think of right before you're going to eat the lunch, but it's kind of like the gall and bile fluids in our body that is filled with infection. And I know it's a terrible thought, but, but Peter says you're filled with bile, infectious, poisonous bile. That is not how any person would ever describe a person who's come from darkness into light. And therefore, my premise is, and I think what Peter is showing us here, is that this man, in fact, never, ever became born again. I don't think for a moment that Peter would ever say this about someone who would truly have been displaying the fruit of being born again. He says, the intent of your heart is wicked. And he says, you are in the bond of iniquity. In other words, you are in captive to sin. Simon answered, pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now notice Simon's request. And I think this again tells us What's going on in his heart? Was Simon broken because he had violated a holy God? Was, was Simon upset because he had sinned against a holy God and he's broken over the fact? Or is Simon more concerned about his well-being than the fact that he sinned against a holy God? And I think you know the answer. He's only concerned that none of these circumstances that Peter talks about comes upon him. In other words, Simon began being focused upon himself the whole motivation for, for believing and being baptized, I think, was motivated by his own kingdom, his own work, his own crowds. I think he was wanting to manipulate God's gift to be able to draw more crowds. And I think at the very end, when he's confronted with his sin, instead of repenting, truly repenting, which means a change of thinking, that this truly is, in fact, sinful, this truly is, in fact, wicked, instead of repenting, he is more concerned about his own well-being than anything else. Be sure you understand that the fruits of a Christian are going to be evident for the world to see. That there can be people who are Christian in name only, but have no fruits to back up the fact that they've been changed. This man is filled with venom. This man is filled with wickedness. Now, in closing, I want to just talk a little bit about application here. How, how do we, what do we do with the text like this, right? We got, a, we got a Simon the magician, and we've got the Holy Spirit that, that was not given and was held back until Peter and John. What do we do with a text like this? It's kind of odd and strange and kind of out there, Well, Let's talk about that just a little bit. First of all, I want you to write these down if you can. The first thing I want you to see in application here is that the church must prepare the second generation of disciples to continue the mission. What do I mean by that? This church has been supported and blessed and uh, led by a lot of folks who've been Christ followers for a long time, and I'm so thankful for each one of them. I know that you're praying for me, you're praying for the church, you're praying for the mission, you're praying for all of that, and you've been faithful to this church for many, many years, and I thank God for you. But we as a church, we must raise up a second, third, fourth generation of disciples who will continue the ministry, not only here just on this campus, but across the globe. I would love our church to be able to send missionaries out, not just into Robinson County. Remember, our mission field is Robinson County. Our mission field is this entire region. Our mission is Region 3 from the Southern Baptist, from North Carolina Baptist. Region 3 is 1.3 million people. 60% of them do not have faith in Jesus Christ or are unchurched. 60%. And that region stretches all the way up to Ashboro, all the way over into Pinehurst, Aberdeen. All of these counties together, there's 1.3 million people. We as a church must 
equip and send people not only into Region 3, but across the globe. As God raises up and calls more people to the mission field, whether that be here or abroad, we must prepare that next generation, which means every disciple that I'm talking to right now, you've got to have somebody you're pouring into. All that you've learned and all that you've experienced in your walk with Jesus, are you pouring that into someone else? Hopefully, at the very least, you're pouring that into your children. You're pouring that into your family. But beyond that, beyond the walls of your house, who can you point to that says, I'm pouring into this person so they can continue the mission, just like we see in the book of Acts? Secondly, secondly, we must recognize and oppose false miracle workers. There are TV shows that are streaming this morning. There are online platforms that are streaming this morning where there are false prophets and false teachers who are using the gospel of Jesus Christ for their own benefit and to proclaim a false gospel. They are supposedly doing all kinds of miracles in front of the TV for the world to see when in fact they're not doing any miracles at all. Now, I believe in the miracle power of God. I believe that God is still working miracles today. Many of you have experienced a miracle in your life where, where God spared your life and he did a miracle in your life that when you went back to the doctor, the cancer was gone or the heart disease was gone. God has worked miracles in your life, but I want you to understand that there are people out there that are taking the gospel that we love and turning it into a sideshow. And we as believers, we've got to recognize that and we've got to call that out when we see it. And not only that, I don't know that you should be wasting your financial resources to support people who are nothing more than charlatans and sideshow artists. I know that's harsh, and I'm not going to call any names today. You can figure that out on your own. But I'm here to tell you that what Simon was doing in Acts chapter 8 is occurring today. That people love to take the gospel of Jesus Christ and turn it into a financial gain so that they have a platform and a huge audience, but the gospel's completely devoid of their ministry. How can you tell if the the gospel has been compromised. If you never hear them talk about sin, if you never hear them talk about what the Bible says is right and wrong, if you never hear them say anything about them, they're hiding that behind the stage and they're only presenting to you a God that is altogether love and he loves all people and certainly that he does. But if we're only telling part of the gospel, that's not the gospel. If you subtract anything from the gospel, you add anything to it, you no longer have the gospel. And if they're hiding the hard stuff behind the stage and not presenting the full, true gospel where people must count the cost before they follow Jesus, they're not presenting the gospel and you'd be better off to turn it off. Third, we as disciples, we got to resist the temptation to manipulate God through bargaining. We got to resist that temptation to try to manipulate God. We try to do it. We're all guilty of it, especially when we get in hard circumstances. God, if I'll do this, if if you'll just come through and you'll you'll do this, then then I'll do these things. I don't know how that works out for you, but rarely ever do I ever remember the things I promised God once the storm is over. Maybe you've been bargaining with God the last few weeks about your job, your family, your situation. I hope that you can see that, that Simon's goal here was bargaining with God. Simon's goal here was to take God's gift, manipulate it for his own purposes. And ultimately, folks, and this is, this is where it gets kind of hard. When, when, we, when we try to manipulate God that way, the creator of the universe, when we try to manipulate him that way, we're trying to get our own way at the end of the day. Does that mean that where God says, come and make your petitions known, does that mean it's not valid? Absolutely not. Jesus said, seek and ask and knock, that we're to come to God with all of our petitions. Absolutely continue to do that. But also remember that God's will is what's most important here. And that sometimes, oftentimes, the things I ask for are just not lining up with his will. Here's what we should be doing. Is we seek, we seek God's will and then we cooperate with that. And it's trying to, to, instead of trying to manipulate him, which is not going to happen, by the way, we, we simply try to understand what his will is, and we cooperate with that. Fourth, and I want to end here. Fourth, be certain your salvation is based upon the truth of Scripture, not feelings, and not because somebody manipulated you. A lot of people struggle with Am I born again? Am I not? Have I, have I come from darkness into light? And 
I know some of you struggle with that, but what I want to ask you is, is your faith in something else other than Scripture? Is it, have you put your faith in praying the sinner's prayer? I, I, don't, I, don't think, I don't think the sinner's prayer is a bad thing. The sinner's prayer can be something that, that you can use to express that faith in Christ, but if our hope is upon the sinner's prayer for salvation, you're missing the point. The prayer of salvation, the sinner's prayer, is simply a vehicle by which we can express faith in God. But if you don't understand the gospel, if you don't even if you don't understand what Jesus did on your behalf, so all you're doing is repeating a prayer, repeating repeating a prayer, repeating a prayer, checking the boxes, and you still have no assurance of your salvation. The reason may be is because you're putting your faith in the prayer rather than in Jesus Christ who died in your place. We got to be very careful. I've met people who've said the prayer and have no idea what they're saying. I know people who've prayed the prayer every time they've been in a gathering where the sinner's prayer has been led, the ABCs of salvation, they've prayed them so many times, but they've never stopped to even think or consider what is the sinner's prayer, and they continue to live as though they're lost because they are. Their faith was in some kind of magic formula that as long as they keep checking the boxes, then everything is okay. This may surprise you. Did you know there's not one record in the Bible, not one record, recorded event in the New Testament of someone coming to faith in Christ through the sinner's prayer? And I want you to understand, I've used the sinner's prayer. I came to faith in Christ through the sinner's prayer. The point here is, is it's not the prayer that saves you. It's faith and belief in God where we repent. We have a change of mind about what sin is and about who God is and about what Jesus did to accomplish, and we express faith. I could ask you right now, if you've put your faith in Jesus, or have you put your faith in a prayer where you've checked all the boxes? What about this? Is your salvation based upon an altar call? You know, uh, we, we give people an opportunity to respond at every service. I'm going to give you an opportunity in just a moment at home. But walking out and walking down an aisle and bowing at a carpeted set of steps, if your faith is in that for salvation, and you've never had assurance of your salvation, it could be that your, your faith is misplaced. That you've put it on something that, that man has put together. And trust me when I tell you, the altar call itself and the way we do it is something that, that we've developed over many, many years in the, the revivals here in America where we offer people an opportunity to respond. And we want to do that. We're going to continue to do that. But we've got to make sure we're clear in the gospel that the gospel doesn't become walking an aisle or a gospel doesn't become saying a prayer the way we're supposed to say it. That the gospel is faith in Jesus. Is your salvation based on emotions? I took a youth group one time to a youth camp years ago. I didn't know much about the youth camp. Uh, the, the kids that I took, all of them uh, had put their faith in Jesus, had the fruit of salvation in their life. I was discipling them actively. They were all kids that had come from darkness into life, and they showed evidence of that. We get up to this youth camp, and there was a, a very well-known speaker on the stage, and he manipulated my entire youth group to get saved again. He, he talked them into lostness just so he could get them saved again so that he could post on Facebook or, or the Internet. I think this was even before Facebook. He could post on the Internet that he had 300 or 400 or 500 salvations. The kids that I took with me, trust me when I tell you, I knew those kids. I knew them well. And then I was the one to have to mop up that theological mess for weeks afterwards. It was an emotional event. Just the right song, just the right manipulation, just the right pushing, the right buttons. And the next thing you know, all the teens that I had with me who were born again have been talked into the fact that they were now lost and must pray his prayer and must respond to him and must come to his stage and his altar for their salvation to be valid. And finally, this is the last question. Has your life changed as a result of putting your faith in Christ? If I were to ask you this question, what have you had to give up to follow Jesus? I ask that question a lot. You should easily have something come to mind, right? There should be something that comes to mind almost immediately of something you've had to give up to take up your cross and follow Jesus. Has your life changed? Are you a different person now than you were five years ago before you put your faith in Jesus? I want you to understand this. God is not some genie in a bottle. 
God is not some secret weapon that we take the sports events with us so that we can win the ball game or win the tennis match. God is not our silent partner in a poker game. Please stop presenting God as though he's a genie in a bottle. Please don't present God or the gospel as some kind of little thing we keep in our back pocket just so when things get hard, we can pull him out and ask for our three wishes. That is not who God is. No, God is holy and righteous and altogether different from us, and he's not someone who can be manipulated. He's not someone who can be toyed around with. He's someone to take seriously. What's amazing is, is that the grace of God and all of its beauty and its wonder has already given us the favor that we deserve from God. I mean, we don't deserve any favor from God because of our unrighteousness, but because of His grace, God shows us favor. It's a gift of His grace. We don't have to manipulate Him for it. We don't have to, we don't have to manipulate others. We simply rest in the beauty and the incredible grace of God. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, I've raised some questions for those watching this morning about where their faith is. And we don't want to be guilty of manipulating God. And, and Father, we have, down through the years, put our focus on things other than the gospel. And Father, I think that down through the years, it's been a detriment that the prayer someone prays to come from darkness and the light is so beautiful and so amazing that we have to understand that the prayer is not the basis of our faith. It's not the object of our faith. Jesus Christ, the righteous, His substitutionary death on the cross for us and His resurrection, that's where we place our faith. It is not from walking down an aisle. Although our faith is to be public, it, it is not an emotional manipulation by someone on a stage. Although, Father, when we put our faith in you, everything changes. It is simply saying, Father, I, I know that I'm a sinner. I know that I've been disobedient. I know that I've missed the mark. But I believe that Jesus Christ, I believe that he died in my place as a perfect man. He resurrected from the dead, and I surrender all to him. Father, whether they pray that or whether they say it out loud, whether inside their own heart they've lowered themselves and surrendered themselves in humility, realizing they can't save themselves, Father, you are quick and gracious to forgive. Father, as a church body, may we never misuse the gospel. May we never turn it into a platform that we try to benefit personally out of, that we simply do what you've called us to do and that's to be on mission for you. As we sing this last song, Father, it's a powerful song and I pray that it touches all the hearts of those out there that are listening this morning. We love you and we thank you. It's in Christ's name, amen. Thank you for tuning in to this week's sermon. For more information about Hyde Park Baptist Church, please check out our website, hydepark.church or on social media on Facebook and Instagram at Hyde Park Baptist. 